Okay, um, so our, our second speaker in this session is a member of one of those slacker religious orders that do not recite the whole of the Psalms every day. Uh, <laughs> the wonderful, very wonderful uh, Colin McDonough from St. Saviour's Private Priory um, here in Dublin. Uh, and uh, he is going to give us what promises to be a very interesting paper that will involve uh, rereading the sermons uh, in the Lower Brack. Thanks so much for that, Lizzie, um, and thanks to all the organisers of this conference for putting all this together. It's immensely exciting. I've learned so much uh, already, and it's a real honour for me to be part of it all. So among late medieval Irish manuscripts, the Lower Brack is perhaps unusual in its homogeneity, a single scribe, almost exclusively religious contents, and so on. A large portion of this manuscript consists of homilies or sermons, that is, texts which at some point in their history had some intended relationship with spoken addresses in the context of the Christian liturgy. These sermons have a thoroughly bilingual Latin-Irish character in their written form, which bilingualism was fam infamously obscured in Atkinson's editions, but made clear in Stokes' editions of four of the homilies, and more recently in the editions of Frederick MacDonagh and Roisin McLaughlin. Among these sermons, there's a certain homogeneity as well, in that the majority of them include opening passages and concluding passages in a very distinctive style, suggesting that although these sermons are very diverse in many other ways and drew on many different strata of the Christian tradition, they were gathered into a collection and given a final form by someone who engaged intelligently and creatively with the material he was gathering and placed a personal stamp on the material. If you'll allow a slightly odd analogy, Friars have been specialising in odd analogies for 800 years. We can think of these sermons as sandwiches. The sermons in the Lower Brack with these distinctive introductions and conclusions are like sandwiches made of a very distinctive bread, like these pumpernickel sandwiches. And just as with a, a very particular choice of bread suggests a sandwich maker with a very particular project, so these distinctive elements suggest that in their final form, as I said, these sermons belong to a single collection carefully compiled a collection of homilies which we call a humiliarium. There are good reasons to think that this humiliarium predates the Lower Brack. In other words, the scribe of the Lower Brack is not the compiler of the collection. There is a humiliarium behind this manuscript. And it's important to note too that there are sermons in the Lower Brack which aren't pumpernickel sandwiches. They lack the distinctive introductory and concluding passages. Did they too belong to this pre-existing humiliarium? or were they found by the scribe of the Lower Brack in other collections? Some scholars have assigned some of these homilies to the pre-existing homilarium on the basis of certain elements of style. In my own reading, I've tried to remain agnostic about this, and in my slides, I'll mark the sermons which include the distinctive passages by writing their names in bold. So what's in these distinctive top-and-tail passages? The introduction identifies in quite an elaborate fashion the human and divine authors of the scriptural passage being preached on. I've given you just one example on the handout text one from the Sermo at Reges, the sermon addressed to rulers or kings. The text being preached on is Proverbs 16.7, the book of Proverbs being traditionally ascribed to Solomon. And the opening passage says, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the noble Godhead, co-eternal and consubstantial with the Father and the Son, is that spirit who revealed these mysteries to Solomon, the son of David, and so on. I've sent this and other passages like it in the Lower Brack to a number of experts in the field of sermon studies, 
and they each remarked on the highly unusual nature of these passages. It's not standard preaching practice, in other words, to name the human and divine authors in this way. The distinctive concluding passages in these sermons include a prayer that preacher and congregation will experience heavenly glory. And this way of ending a sermon is actually quite standard throughout the history of Christian preaching from Gregory onwards. But the relevant passages in the Lower Brack have a special feature, their emphasis on the unity of heaven, unity with the patriarchs, unity with the martyrs, unity with the angels, unity with the Trinity, and so on, often piling up various aspects of heavenly unity. And again, I've given you an example of one of these conclusions from the Sermon at Regis, and you can see there the repeated mention of this eschatological unity. Incidentally, one of these concluding passages in the Sermon on the Circumcision of Jesus includes a long phrase that corresponds exactly with the phrase in the De Tribus Habitaculis Anime. Heaven is described as a place where there is summa pax, summa quies, nullus labor, nullus dolor, and so on. And I don't think that's been noticed before, and it might be relevant to the debate over an Irish origin for that text. Now, everything I've said so far about the distinctive features of sermons in the Lower Brack was said long ago by the Franciscan friar Frederick MacDonagh. Among other important observations, he gave a date to the Humiliarium, which appears to lie behind the Lower Brack, 11th century. And it's worth noting the reason he gives for this date. In his list of the Lower Brack homilies, which he identified as sharing similar style, he includes the Fish Adavnon, which he says was written before the year 1106. And from that one homily, he says, we have a terminus adquem for dating all the homilies. Now, I'm loath to criticize a fellow friar and a fellow Macdonagh, especially because I haven't been able to read everything he wrote on these homilies, but the reasoning presented in that, in that passage clearly isn't sound. And those who've worked on the sermons since then have often noted the speculative nature of Macdonagh's dating of the collection. In spite of these doubts, that 11th century date hangs around these homilies very stubbornly, even in recent studies. What about dating the language? Experts in the historical development of the Irish language aren't in agreement at all about the age of the Irish in the vernacular passages of these sermons. So in 1983, Kenneth Jackson summarised their views, and I'm grateful to Professor Liam Branagh for sharing this reference with me. Jackson notes that some date the Irish in these sections to around 1050, some 1100, some to the 12th century as a whole, some to around 1150. And Jackson himself thinks that a careful reading shows great linguistic variation, in fact, and suggests that what's needed is a minute analysis of all the linguistic features of each document in the Passions and Homilies, edited by, by Atkinson. Garrodge Mac Owen carried out some of this linguistic work, and he showed, for example, that the homily on the Ten Commandments, which, we just, which was referred to in the last talk, includes many loanwords from French and English, which are only otherwise attested in the 15th century. So he dates this homily to the second half of the 14th century, which is an interesting indication, perhaps, of vitality in, in Clamac Noise at that stage. It's worth noting, incidentally, that this sermon is not one of the pumpernickel sandwiches. It lacks that distinctive introduction and conclusion, so this late dating might not be relevant to the dating of the homiliarium. But still, MacOwen's concluding point is significant. This late date of the homily on the Ten Commandments shows, if it ever needed to be stressed, that the collection in Lauerbrach the collection of homilies, I think he means there, is not a uniform set of texts, but that they derive from widely differing periods. In recent decades, scholars have mined these sermons for examples of continuity with an older Irish intellectual tradition. 
They've been looking, if you like, at the sandwich fillings in search of the oldest ingredients. So Rittmuller's article on the Hiberno-Latin exegetical sources of the Sermon on the Lord's Supper is a good example of this. And more recently, Brent Miles has written on the Sermo at Regis. I forgot to put this on the, in the bibliography, but I have a reference if anybody needs it. And he suggested, based on a very close reading of the Sermo at Regis, that it not only makes use of the De Duodecim Abusivi Seculi, but also, perhaps, the Collectio Canonum Hibernensis. I'm convinced this is a very fruitful way to read these homilies, but in this presentation, I'm more interested in the complete sandwich. So in my own reading of the sermons, I passed over the earliest and most archaic aspects of the collection and went looking for the latest and most innovative. It's to be expected, of course, that a collection of sermons will incorporate older preaching material, but it's the youngest material that helps us understand the final composition and enables us to appreciate the whole collection most completely. And by youngest material, I mean the youngest material that is well integrated into the sermons, not incidental add-ons. So the sandwich itself and not the mere garnish. I know I'm testing your patience with this extended analogy, but it helps me at least. So with this in mind, let's turn to the Lower Brack sermons, which I'll present under three methodological headings, identifying sermons, categorizing sermons, and dating sermons. And in each of these cases, I'll be drawing on the latest scholarship in sermon studies, some elements of which are in the bibliography on your handout. So how do we identify a written text as a sermon? Sometimes they're identified as such in the manuscript, like the Sermo at Reges, the Sermon to Kings in the Lower Brack. I was going to put a little red circle around this title, but the scribe got there ahead of me. So we can see Sermo at Reges. Sometimes as well, sermons include explicit second-person plural addresses to the congregation, or first-person singular references to the preacher, or first-person plural references to the preacher and congregation. There is a nice example of that in the text in the Lower Brack on the fasting and temptation of Christ. Near the end, it says, Rogo vos fratres. I ask you, brothers. Atkinson actually has Rogo nos fratres, which would have been really interesting, but the manuscript actually says, Rogo vos fratres. And the preacher then goes on to ask the people he's speaking to uh, not to feast on the days of Lent apart from Sundays. Um, so sermons sometimes include references also to saints' days or moments in the liturgical year that mark these texts as designed for, for temporally located events. Now, a sermon might be atemporal, an address on a particular virtue that could be given at any time, like the Lower Brack Sermon on Charity, or it might be a generic address to a particular group in society, like the Lower Brack Sermon addressed to kings. These two categories are known as sermones de virtutibus and sermones ad status, respectively. But the vast majority of medieval sermons are temporally located. They're designed to be delivered on particular days, saints' days in the case of sermones de sanctis, or particular Sundays and other major feasts of the liturgical year in the case of sermones de tempore. So that sermon on fasting that I just mentioned, it clearly fits into this last category. It opens with the gospel reading used in many liturgical traditions for the first Sunday of Lent, and the advice it gives fits that liturgical context perfectly. And we can say the same about the sermons on Palm Sunday, Pentecost, and so on. And we can actually use what we know about the liturgy to identify accurately a sermon that has been mistitled in the Lower Brack, the sermon that's entitled there, Cathine in Brack, Betrayal Wednesday, or Spy Wednesday, Wednesday of Holy Week. Scholars have already noted that its content fits Ash Wednesday, the first day of Lent, better than Wednesday of Holy Week. And indeed, when we look at the gospel reading it's preaching on, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites, 
we find that's the standard gospel reading, as I said, in many traditions for Ash Wednesday. So we can be fairly confident in regarding its title in the Lower Brack as a mistake. We find other temporal markers in texts of the Lower Brack. Many of them include phrases like, on this day, at this time, in this period, on this day the Lord rose, on this day the Holy Spirit was sent, and so on. And these markers actually enable us to identify these texts as sermons, even if they're not labelled as sermons, even if it says the Passion or the Vita or whatever it might be. So the text on Peter and Paul and the text on Patrick, they're not just hagiography. They have been reworked into sermon form and they're explicitly designed to be proclaimed on a particular day. Uh, the text on the transfiguration of Jesus is not just a commentary on that gospel passage. It's a sermon designed to be preached on the Feast of the Transfiguration. And I've compiled a little list here of the texts which include these markers of temporality. And I've given you one of the relevant passages on your handout for the, the Feast of St. Peter and Paul. So we have examples in the Lower Brack of these four categories of sermons which became standard in the late medieval period. De Tempore, De Sanctis, De Virtutibus, and Ad Status. As for dating sermons, it's a risky business, but there are sometimes helpful hints hidden in these texts, and an obvious one is the naming of authorities. So if a sermon quotes Bede by name, then it can't, in its final form at least, be older than Bede. So when we find the Lower Brack homily on the Ten Commandments, quoting Bernard of Clairvaux, we can be sure that it's not older than, say, mid-12th century, since Bernard was writing in the 1120s and 30s. So independently of McGowan's linguistic analysis, we have a good reason for dating the final form of this sermon later than the 11th century. Another aid in dating these sermons is the liturgy itself. So liturgy has a history. It's not something fixed and unchanging. And if the liturgy has developed in a particular way, and a sermon reflects that development, then that helps provide a terminus postquem for the sermon. So one interesting example in the Lower Brack is the Sermon on the Transfiguration. As I mentioned, this text is, is not just a commentary on the events in the Gospel, it's a sermon for the liturgical commemoration of the event. In nube hodie transfiguratus est, it says. In a cloud he was transfigured today. But here's the thing. The Feast of the Transfiguration on the 6th of August was a relative latecomer to the Latin liturgy. It only came to be universally celebrated in the mid-15th century, although it was spreading slowly from the late 12th century onwards, initially through Cluniac monasteries. So here's a little-known uh, Dominican manuscript from Ireland which shows this process in action. So you're looking here at uh, a list of epistle and gospel readings on saints' days organized chronologically. On August 6th, it has St. Sixtus and Felix, who are far more popular at that stage than the Transfiguration. But then the Transfiguration with proper readings, in fact, the same reading that we have uh, in the, the Lower Brack for the Transfiguration, is added in the margins. And Richard Pfaff's book, New Liturgical Feasts in Later Medieval England, it gives many other examples of these, this updating with the Feast of the Transfiguration. So given all of this, I think it's likely that the Sermon of the Lower Brack for the Feast of the Transfiguration dates from after 1200. Having said that, and those of you who are eagle-eyed will have uh, noted Wesley Follett's slide that mentioned the feast, the feast of the Transfiguration, or at least the Transfiguration, on July 26th. And the Phelera Angusa does mention the Transfiguration of Jesus with that word Tharmacrothid, which is also used in the Lower Brack, on the 26th of July. And it's also associated with that date in a calendar or martyrology in the Drummond Missal, an Irish Missal from the 11th or 12th century. So it might just be the case that there is an independent feast of the Transfiguration in Ireland. 
But that is far from certain. It's not clear in either of these cases, for example, that reference is being made to a liturgical commemoration of the feast. Both of these calendars, they list multiple events on each date. Uh, and not all of these events could be celebrated in the liturgy with proper texts. So it may be that these calendars or martyrologies are simply listing all the events that happened on each day without necessarily implying the local liturgical celebration of these events. What we find from the late 12th century onwards, however, is the spread of proper prayers and readings for the liturgical commemoration of the Transfiguration. That's what we find added in this margin, and that's the context in which we would expect a sermon on the Transfiguration. So I wanted to mention that caveat in any case. It's a risky business, as I said, dating these texts. Apart from actual changes in liturgy, there's also the fact that old feasts take on new meanings over centuries. So one good example is the Feast of the Circumcision of Jesus on the eighth day, sorry about that, on the eighth day after Christmas on January 1st. The Gospel of Luke tells us that it was at this moment that he was given the name Jesus. Now from the 12th century on, there's a growing devotion in Latin Christianity to the holy name, the name of Jesus. First among Cistercians, and then among Dominicans and Franciscans from 1274 onwards, when Pope Gregory X charged these orders with spreading this devotion. So here's a very nice example of such devotion in an Irish-Dominican context from a copy of the Chronicles of a 14th century prior of my own community, uh, John Pembridge. As part of this new spiritual movement, the Feast of the Circumcision becomes an occasion to preach specifically on the name of Jesus. I looked up all the pre-13th century homilies on the Feast of the Circumcision that I could find, from Fulgentius of Ruspe to Alfrich, and nowhere could I find any particular attention paid to the name of Jesus. But that theme is everywhere emphasized in preaching on the circumcision from around 1200 on, as in, for example, the Legenda Aurea by Jacobus de Voragine, an immensely popular work throughout Europe. So what do we find in the Lauer Brack sermon on the circumcision? Well, it's one of the sermons on which Atkinson used his own scissors. He gives a good section of it in his edition, but the last section, almost entirely in Latin, he leaves out. It was edited by Frederick MacDonagh, and there we find a substantial passage on the name of Jesus, its literal and symbolic meaning, and so on. And his name is referred to there as the holy name, Nomen Sanctum, all of which is redolent of the Cistercian, Dominican, and Franciscan devotion to the name of Jesus. So it's not an absolute clincher that this sermon is post-1200, but it seems to me to point us strongly in that direction. Perhaps the most significant datable aspect of sermons, though, is their form or structure. Periodization is, is obviously tricky in any field, but there's overwhelming consensus among scholars in sermon studies that the period around the year 1200 is a watershed in the history of preaching. The 13th century witnessed a preaching revolution led by the new orders of friars and featuring a new style of sermon known in the literature at the time as uh, the Sermo Modernus, also known to scholars as the thematic sermon, so-called because it opens with a thema. Instead of offering a verse-by-verse -verse reflection on a substantial passage of scripture, the Sermo Modernus begins with a short phrase from the Bible, usually from the Bible, sometimes less than one verse, sometimes a little longer, and these themata were carefully chosen, usually from the readings of the Mass of the Day, and functioned, to use an image popular in the preaching manuals of the time, as the trunk of a tree from which a series of divisions and distinctions branched out. This structure is often reduced in sermon manuscripts to, to diagram form, branching diagrams of the kind studied by Ayelet Evan Ezra in this recent publication, who relates this structuring of texts to, among other things, 
the scholastic culture in early universities. So was this new style of preaching influential in Ireland? There's a fine Irish collection of sermons which shows that it was TCD 347, a 13th century Franciscan manuscript associated with the Franciscan friary in Multifarnham. It contains sermons written in Latin for the Sundays of the year and for major saints days, including that of Bridget and Patrick. And in each case, the sermon opens with a very brief scriptural thema. The sermons, in other words, there are sermones moderni. Colman O'Clabby's book, The Friars in Ireland, lists further evidence for the spread of this new style of preaching via friars here. And I think it's fair to say that all the dozens of houses of friars that dotted Ireland from the 13th century onwards were places where the Sermo Modernus was known and practiced. What do we have in the Lower Brack then? Do we find the sermons working through a substantial passage line by line? Or do we find sermons opening with just a verse or two? If the sermon collection dated to the 11th century, it's the former we'd expect, but what we find is very much the latter. So an impressive number of the sermons in the Lower Brack begin with a short scriptural thema. Here's a list of them that I could identify. As we'd expect in the sermon modernist style, these themata are drawn not just from the Gospels, from, but from throughout Scripture. The Psalms, Proverbs, the prophet Hosea, Revelation, and so on. And note that I've written the names of all of these sermons in bold. So they're all pumpernickel sandwiches. They feature the distinctive elements of the humiliarium we're interested in reconstructing. In each of these cases, the person who writes this characteristic florid introductory passage on the divine and human authors is writing about single verses drawn from the full range of scripture. That is, he's writing about themata, he's consciously putting together a thematic sermon, a sermo modernus. Now, do all these sermons follow precisely the structure of a sermo modernus? No. In the case of some of the sermons on the saints, the main body of the sermon is just a chunk of narrative, and it doesn't really make use of the thema as a sermo modernus should, but some of the sermons do feature the kind of branching structure we expect from a sermo modernus. With all this in mind, I think we can say with some confidence that the compiler of our collection had this model in mind. He was familiar with it. And if he had this model in mind, then he's highly unlikely to have been working before the 13th century. Now, we should be clear that the Lower Brack also includes sermons which largely conform to the older style of preaching, the Sermo Antiquus, to use the term found in 13th century manuals, but that's not a surprise. The Sermo Modernus, it didn't eliminate other sermon forms, and I've given on your handout a reference to a book chapter by R.N. Swanson about the preaching booklet of a 15th century English parish priest, which includes distinctly old-fashioned sermons as well as more uh, typical late medieval preaching material. He has some Carolingian sermons in there. That chapter is entitled A Cycle Recycled, and the metaphor of recycling is very relevant, I think, to our study of the sermons in the Lower Brack. Again, not to labour the point, but it's not the oldest material that helps us date the final stage of the compilation, but the newest material. And we have in this compilation the unquestionable and abundant presence of a sermon form which was not widespread until the 13th century. It's not just the use of themata that associates these sermons with the 13th century preaching revolution, it's also the presence of distinctiones, numbered lists of preachable points linked to a single word or idea. So alphabetical collections of distinctiones were compiled and spread widely in the 13th century as a tool for preachers. So say you, you choose your thema and it includes the word nubes, cloud. Then you look up nubes in your alphabetical list of distinctiones and you might find 
five times a cloud turns up in scripture are, are 10 spiritual meanings of the word cloud. And there you, you use that list to construct a number of branches from the tree trunk of the thema. These distinciones circulate as complete collections. There's one in TCD 347, but also piecemeal in the margins of Bibles and manuscripts of preaching material, and of course in sermons themselves. So here's a fine Irish example, hardly uh, commented on at all, of distinciones represented in branching diagrams in a Bible belonging to the Dominican friars of Arklow. It will soon be digitized as part of a project at UL on the manuscript heritage of Irish Dominicans. And on the following folio here, we find uh, some more of these distinctions, and here's one I managed to transcribe. It's a fairly grim list of aspects of the human condition, frequency in failing, poverty in progressing, impossibility in remaining standing, and so on. TCD 667 is another manuscript which includes distinctions, as you can see in the lower margin here. It dates to the middle of the 15th century, and I recently argued that it ought to be associated with the Dominican Priory in Limerick. It includes literally hundreds of short texts aimed at helping preachers construct sermons, like this distinctio, an unusual one, listing four reasons the Our Father is said silently during Mass. That text was unusual enough that it remained in my memory, so that when I was reading the Lower Brack sermon on the Lord's Prayer, I nearly fell out of my seat, because there we find a list of six reasons the Lord's Prayer is said silently. It's text seven on your handout, and the four reasons that we find here are all found in the Lauerbrack Sermon. They correspond to points 1, 2, 3, and 6. That's not the only example I found of a parallel in the Lauerbrack with distinctiones circulating elsewhere. So just to return to the Sermon on the Circumcision, I compared it with the Sermon on the same topic in the Legenda Aurea. And in both these sermons, we find the eight days between the birth of Christ and his circumcision compared to eight ages of the world, six historical ages, then the age of death or judgment, and then the age of resurrection. In both of these sermons, we find these eight days also compared to an eightfold division of scripture. And in another sermon on the circumcision by the same author, Jacobus de Beragine, we find a moral interpretation of circumcision distinguished according to functions of the body. Circumcision with respect to sight, hearing, speech, smell, the hands. And we find a similar distinction in the Lower Brack homily. Circumcision with respect to lips, eyes, ears, taste, smell, feet, hands, and the heart. So we're not dealing here, of course, with direct quotations, but these parallels suggest very strongly that Voragine's sermons on the circumcision and the sermon in the Lower Brack are emerging from the same homiletic culture, that is, the culture of the Sermo Modernus. Finally, we've already mentioned the, the introductory passages present in many of these sermons and the florid way the divine and human authors are, uh, of each thema are identified in these introductions is, as I mentioned, unique, as far as I can tell. But the fact that an introduction is found here following the thema and before the sermon proper takes off, that is entirely typical of the Sermo Modernus. It's what's called a pro-thema in the, uh, the te terminology of the time. Nicole Berrioux, who's probably read more sermons than anyone else alive, she writes in an article that I listed on your handout that this section of the sermon, the pro-thema, is not found in sermons before 1200, and yet it's found in many of the sermons in the Lower Brack. Now, not everything I've said here is unknown to scholarship, of course, and Tom Terhorst's doctoral thesis, for example, mentions the presence of the Sermo Modernus form in the Lower Brack, but as far as I know, nobody has yet applied these insights from the world of sermon studies to the dating of the sermons in the Lower Brack. And I hope it's clear by now that there are many reasons to doubt the dating of these sermons, or even the majority of them, to the 11th century. 
So very tentatively and subject to much further study, I propose an alternative hypothesis. Given everything I've outlined so far, and allowing time following the arrival of the friars in 1224 for the new style of preaching to encounter and absorb older Irish homiletic material, it seems sensible to conclude that the homiliarium which stands behind the Lower Brack is a product of no earlier, earlier than the middle of the 13th century. Does the collection incorporate much older material? Certainly. But its late medieval symptoms, it seems to me, are pervasive and by no means incidental. The late Richard Sharp described the dating of the sermons in the Lower Brack as a vexed question, and I'm aware that what I'm saying here might be cause for even more vexation, given that it's so out of kilter with all the scholarship on this manuscript, but I hope at least that it's clear from what I've outlined that arguing for an earlier date, the 11th century for example, entails also claiming that the form of the Sermo Modernus was independently arrived at in Ireland two centuries before anywhere else, and that's a big claim. In fact, the development of the Sermo Modernus, it seems so intimately related to the scholastic culture of early universities that it's almost unthinkable that it came into existence fully formed before the birth of the universities. If I'm not catastrophically wrong, then the use of older Irish material in the sermons of the Lower Brack becomes all the more interesting. So if what I'm saying is correct, then we have evidence in the Lower Brack of the new preaching movements in the 13th century taking up and making their own a much older tradition. I suggested elsewhere that another manuscript in this library, the Liber Flavis for Guziorum, ought to be associated with the Dominican friars of Roscommon. That manuscript also includes many texts with Dominican links and many texts related to older Irish traditions of preaching and exegesis. But the texts in that manuscript are side by side rather than really integrated. What makes the Lower Brack different is that individual sermons weave together old and new texts into an innovative form. The Sermo ad Reges, with its use of De Duodecim Abusivi Seculi and the Collectio Canonum Hibernensis, if Brent Miles is correct, the Sermons on the Irish Saints with their use of earlier Irish hagiography, the Sermon on the Lord's Supper with its apparent use of earlier Irish exegesis, the Sermon on the Circumcision with its apparent quotation from De Tribus Habitaculis Anime. If what I've said so far is correct, then we have to imagine a mid-13th century compiler at the earliest engaging creatively with these older Irish texts, not merely out of antiquarian interest, but making use of them in his own thoroughly modern preaching practice. Confirming the hypothesis I'm outlining here, or ruling it out, will require a lot more careful thought and collaboration, and I'm intensely aware of the limits of my knowledge in this field and the brevity and shallowness of my engagement with this manuscript, but I'm grateful for this opportunity to present my own ideas, and I'll be even more grateful to hear your own thoughts on these sermons. Thank you.